Welcome to the Ingenuity Podcast. My name's Alistair Orchard, I'm your host. And as this is the first in a series of podcasts, better get some housekeeping out of the way. Thanks to the great band Wow for the title music from their album by the same name. I better introduce myself. I'm a British guy. Mother's Scottish, father's English. I was born in Spain. I live in Italy, in the great city of Genoa. I work for the Germans. I work for a German company, which is why you may have difficulty in placing my accent. Or as my mother puts it, that's why you sound so stupid, Alastair. Now, I work as a futurist and as a digital ambassador for the company Siemens. Much more on them later. Much more on my job as well. But it does afford me the opportunity to travel an awful lot. I'm usually in one or two cities around the world every week. And I get to talk to the most amazing range of people. People working for the biggest companies, people working for the smallest companies. I find it utterly fascinating. I get to play with all kinds of next-gen technology. And, you know, it struck me that it might be a good idea to allow other people to share in some of these travel some of these conversations, explain some of the technology that's going on behind the scenes, hence the podcast. Now, I think it'll take me a while to find my voice, as it were, so I'm not sure exactly which, what mix this will end up being. I think it'll be part travel blog, part monologue, uh, explaining the background behind some of these technologies. Now, hopefully you're, you're listening to this because you find that kind of thing interesting, so I will get off into the weeds sometimes. mostly. I'll be staying at a relatively high level. And we're going to spice that up by sprinkling in some of the interviews of the people I meet. I'll be talking to data scientists from within Siemens Corporate Technology. I'll be talking to some of the founders of this whole digitalization movement, the one who, ones who recognized it you know, years before anyone else did and began working diligently. Uh, we'll speak to manufacturers of some of the world's greatest products who are undergoing their own digital transformation, hear about the impact highs and lows of that journey. And no doubt along the way, we'll, we'll meet some of those digital rock stars I talked about. I think I'll capture those conversations initially just with a few questions and answers, maybe let you get to know the people a little bit, touch some high points, and then we'll loop back around with the ones with more to say and do some long-form interviews with them so that we can really pull back the covers, uh, understand what makes them tick explore their lives and their ideas in more depth. I'm also struggling to try and think how best to cover some of the technology that I get to play with. As I mentioned, that makes up an awful lot of my time, whether it's blockchain, generative design, or simulation, advanced robotics, intelligent automation, big data analytics, augmented reality, Actually, a lot of it is pretty immersive. And although I can describe what's going on, maybe get across to you the wonder of, of the tech itself, I'm not entirely sure that I'll be able to convey some of that immersive experience. So we may step into another technology occasionally, maybe switch to YouTube for some of those experiences. Time will tell. This being the pilot, by the way, I don't have all of my gear together yet. So I'm kind of just speaking into an old iPhone. Apologies, therefore, for the ropey sound quality. That will improve, as will my editing skills, my 
microphone manner, and what have you. Now, this being the pilot, we don't want to get too heavy, but I thought we'd explore some of the fundamental elements of why I do my job. I've talked about very briefly, I've touched on um, industrial digitalization being a fourth industrial revolution. So I thought I'd explore that in a little bit more detail during this introductory episode. It's important because these digital technologies, um, on one hand, offer an amazing opportunity for manufacturers to really kind of drag themselves out of the productivity doldrums that, that everyone's been in since the 1970s. On the other hand, they really represent an incredible threat. Actually, about half of the companies that we know and love, the ones that make the most you know, important uh, and untouchable products that, that, that bind our society together, about, about half of those will disappear over the next years. And the reason I can say that with quite some certainty is that um, this is called the fourth industrial revolution. It's happened three times before. And we have something of a corporate memory within Siemens. Um, I certainly wasn't around for the, the first three industrial revolutions, but we know what happened. And about half of the top 500 companies around the, each one of those revolutions was displaced by upstart, smaller, more agile companies, more willing to embrace those two new technologies. And um, that's a process that has already started to happen with the fourth industrial revolution. And so we're going to go back in time and see what the first three industrial revolutions can teach us about what's going on today. Okay, now, if we go back to the end of the Roman Empire, and we look at the 400 years between that time and maybe the late Middle Ages, there was literally no progress in human life. Economic growth was about 0.2% per annum. And something growing at that at that rate requires about 350 years to double. Since 1870, uh, the amount of time it's taken for the standing of living to double has been something more like 30 years. So uh, a big difference. W what is it then that kind of accounts for that, you know, incredible change in that over that time period? Well, remarkably, it was actually the it was the discovery and it was the exploitation of America or the Americas by the Europeans um, that really showed the Europeans that the, the pool of resources that they had at their disposal uh, could actually increase over time. Before then, everyone felt that resources were fixed. Basically, if I wanted to get rich, I had to make you poor. By the way, that's, that's why in the Bible, um, they say it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a, a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because a rich man surely made a lot of people poor over his lifetime. Anyway, the Europeans went to America. They found it fuller resources. They, they brought back that tobacco, those potatoes, all of that gold. And suddenly, with this influx of resources, they had a kind of trust in the future for the, for the first time. Uh, banks were born. Credit was invented. Um, why? Well, in order to to finance those adventures and enterprises. And um, this actually had a knock-on effect in uh, uh, to industry. In the late 18th century, 1776, a guy called Adam Smith, really the, the most famous economist of all time, he published 
a book called The Wealth of Nations. And in that book, he, dis- he explained how wealthier nations kind of fostered this belief in, in growth. And they, they did it by encouraging business owners to reinvest their profits back into their own businesses. Before that point, at the end of every year, all the money that had been made by a company was extracted from that company, went into the pockets of the, the wealthy. But he said, look, if you take that money, you know, keep what you need for your family, but then everything else, reinvest in the company, buy new equipment, hire more people. That's going to increase productivity and everyone in society is going to benefit. Within a year of Adam Smith coining the term capitalism, the first, well, the first truly global generic technology for increasing productivity was born, and, and that was the steam engine. It was invented by a, game, a guy called James Watt. And contrary to popular belief, it wasn't invented you know, directly to go on a, on a steam train. It was actually invented to help coal mines pump water out of their mine shafts. Most of the coal mines were underwater, so you couldn't access much of the coal. But if you could pump it out with one of these incredible steam engines and keep the water out, then you could collect much more coal. And it was incredibly successful. And there were soon these kind of mountains of coal <laughs> piling up next to coal mines. And so indeed, they needed to move it. And they strapped one of these engines to a, to, to a railway uh, uh, wagon. And suddenly they had a, a, um, a steam locomotive to take that coal around the country to factories where steam engines were in turn used for the first time to drive um, uh, uh, factories. By the mid-1800s, steam engines were really, I'd say, at the heart of all heavy industry in Britain. Um, And all the factories looked the same. So, okay, they were all built of brick, obviously. Um, They all had a steam engine in the basement and they were very tall. They were five, six, seven, eight stories tall because they used, they only had this one engine. And so they attached shafts and leather belts to the engine. They had to drive all of the factory. So they, they stacked the factory up on top of the engine so that all of the machines could access that one power source. So it wasn't very efficient, uh, but it was incredible, incredibly transformative. Suddenly, uh, industry was no longer limited by muscle power. Um, these incredible steam engines could work day and night, um, and it created a massive boost in productivity, a huge spike in productivity. Uh, and really, British industry never, never looked back. Now, factories really don't look like that anymore, and the main reason is that they're no longer steam-powered. Most factories run electricity now, and um, this is really actually where... Siemens came into the game. Fenerfant Siemens, his first innovations were actually around the telegraph, around communications technologies. But, um, but he soon turned his attention on industry and actually invented the first electrical motor. And um, you know, the motor ostensibly did what the steam engine did, and that is turn uh, automated equipment. But it did it in a, in a far more effective and efficient way because these motors were small. You didn't need one giant one, which cost an enormous amount of money. It was a single point of failure. You had lots of little ones. um, And so you could spread your factory out like you wanted. You could scale. You wanted new machines. You bought new motors. You didn't have to upgrade the entire steam engine. And suddenly you could think about things like uh, material flows, um, lean manufacturing, the the efficiency of 
logistics within a plant floor because they were no longer stacked one on top of each other. And this really had another instant and giant uh, uh, positive effect on productivity. Again, spreading throughout Britain and then throughout the world. And as I mentioned, at the advent of each of these technologies, the companies who'd invested in the previous technology were the ones most loath to adopt the new technologies. So actually the biggest, most successful incumbents, the ones at the top of their field, the ones that everyone thought would be around forever, they were the ones with little economic incentive to throw all of their infrastructure away and invest in this new technology. They tended to poo-poo it. They tended to shun that new technology, turning their backs on it and deciding instead to stick with what they knew well. The results, of course, were pretty disastrous for those companies. They waited uh, uh, until the smaller companies had adopted the technology, were working for more effectively and efficiently with them, had cornered the market with their lower costs, and suddenly the, there was this opening gulf between the new efficient companies and the old ones. And the old ones very quickly fell by the wayside. This whole pattern repeated itself in the 1950s, 1960s, as... What are called PLCs, these are programmable logic controllers or industrial computers, began to replace humans on the production line. And so steam, electricity, and industrial automation have really provided massive, irreversible, exponential leaps forward in terms of productivity, in terms of growth. Um, and as I said, this is not just an industrial topic that's led to employment it's put money in the pockets of workers it's created prosperity for society so growth is good unfortunately since the 1970s that rate of growth has slowed it's tailed off to a remarkable uh, to a really terrifying level we're now back down to less than one percent that's where we were in the dark ages so instead of prosperity doubling every 30 years Instead of you being sure that your children are going to be twice as well off as you, we're back to that 300, 350, 400 year doubling, which means your children's 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 children might be better off than you are. And that's not good. So what did we do about it? Did we invent a, a new technology, something to replace automation or augment automation? No, we didn't. We decided the best way to approach this was not to increase productivity, increase growth, but it was to lower costs. And so we shut down our factories and we shipped everything offshore. We opened up massive factories. We paid companies in China to open massive factories, produce millions of goods at very low cost, and then ship them back on giant container ships to the shops in, in Europe and the US. Now, the problem with low-cost labor is it doesn't stay low-cost for very long. And so those workers in the Chinese factories, as they began to get money in their pocket and they moved into the middle class, they started demanding higher and higher wages. And so you saw made in China, become made in Vietnam, become made in Malaysia, became made in Indonesia. And it, it, over the last 30 or 40 years, it's been a question of these companies chasing um, low-cost wages, chasing the poor. Um, lower class workers who have no choice but to work in factories. Meanwhile, the Western world, in particular the US, concentrated all its brain power, all its innovation, not on manufacturing, but on pure technology. So on 
the invention and development of computers, Silicon Valley. Computers, computer services, data services. This is where Google was born, Microsoft was born, Apple was born, not in that order. And this has clearly been a huge win for the US. It's had an effect on business productivity. It's had a huge effect on our lives, um, our personal lives. Um, what it hasn't done is had any effect on productivity. And as we know, manufacturing really is the, the engine of a, company, of a country's economy. You can bugger about with technology and all other things uh, at the periphery. But unless you're making stuff, then you've not got an engine for employment, an engine for conversion of raw materials into something useful. And your economy is going to stall, which is, of course, what's really happened. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize the opportunity here. If these amazing technologies that have been invented and developed and refined and optimized in the US and now in other parts of the world can have so fundamentally impacted the way that we listen to music and the way that we communicate and the way that we relate to each other and the way that we travel and buy things and bank and everything. Couldn't we apply this technology to manufacturing and make a huge difference? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, we are. And we're doing so at a rapidly increasing rate, uh, exponential uh, increase in adoption rate. And what's driving that is the same underlying principle that's driving adoption of technology in all fields. That's Moore's law that I'm sure you know states that every year, well, that was the original proclamation of Gordon Moore back in the 1960s, 1965, when he was working for IBM, he said, every year, the number of transistors that we can fit on a chip, which is directly proportional to the power of the, of the chip, is going to double. And if you double something at a regular interval, then you get exponential growth. You get this mind-boggling increase. That's, a, that's what allows something as sim simple as a sperm and an egg to grow into a into an, a huge animal because cells are dividing and growing exponentially. That's what's allowed over the last 50 or 60 years computer power to go from the very simplest, most basic calculation engines to, to really powering um, superhuman computers um, of today. The reality is over that period, it's been more like an 18-month cycle rather than a a 12-month cycle, but still the growth has been mind-boggling. And um, this same growth is now applied. It really applies not only to computer chips, but anything you can put on sili silicon as computer chips, um, uh, memory networks, the prices have shot down, the speed has shot up. And so even if you're looking at in industrial markets, then things like um, robotics, uh, sensors, sensors. If you, if you go back just to... If you go back just a decade, 2007, 2008, then a, an industrial sensor measuring something like temperature would run you, I don't know, maybe $30,000. If you, if you go forward just five years, then that $30,000 was 80 bucks. 
And, and now you can buy a Bluetooth sensor the size of my thumb for maybe $10. And that is not only measuring temperature, but temperature, light, uh, magnetism, orientation, vibration, location. So it's not only your home computers which are undergoing this revolution. It's also industrial computers and really anything with silicon inside. And this, together with the ingenuity of our industrial companies, is driving us the same kind of revolution that we saw uh, um, already three times in history. One more time, it's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the application of these digital technologies into manufacturing. But because we have Moore's Law driving this exponentially, as opposed to more regular technologies, maybe like steam or electricity, then the speed of this change is dramatically faster than it was the first three times around. Add to that the fact that digital technologies can be applied throughout what we call the value chain of a, of a company, um, throughout the ideation process, throughout the realization process, that's where we actually make uh, products through to the utilization of the products, servicing those products. It can be applied across the board. Whereas again, if you're looking at something like Steam, then we're really only looking at one small application. And that was already enough to revolutionize um, industry. So just think how digital technologies, what kind of impact they can have across the board for our manufacturers. And there you have it, the, the promise of a fourth industrial revolution. Now, in the next episode, we're going to look at the value chain of a manufacturer. That's the ideation, the realization, the utilization process. So we're going to dive into product design, engineering, the manufacturing, everything related to production and post-production service. We're going to look at how digital technologies can be applied to massively increase the speed, the agility, the efficiency of those processes whilst maintaining the highest kind of level of quality. We're going to look at some of the implications around business models, things like personalization, what we call mass customization. So the ability to make absolutely unique personalized products of people at the same cost and speed as mass production. It's one of the promises unlocked by digitalization. And we'll begin to explore some of the techniques that are used, things like the digital twin, the creation of a completely virtual world in which products can be designed, tested, manufactured without ever actually uh, using resources in the real world very efficiently, very, very quickly. We're going to begin to explore this hidden world uh, of magic digitalization that's going on all around us and that are beginning to deliver more complex, more capable, safer, more personalized, more amazing products into our, into our stores. And hopefully that'll give you an insight as to what's going on, maybe excite you about some of those technologies. Okay, so for now, that's all. Thanks for listening. So come back next time. Subscribe in iTunes, all the usual places, so you're sure you don't miss the next episode. I'm Alistair Orchard, and that was the Ingenuity Podcast. Bye-bye.